Hello and welcome to episode four of series three of the Poolside Pass podcast. On today's show, we're going to be speaking to Swim Wales head coach Graham Antwistle and former uh, GB National Centre at Bath coach as well. Um, Graham was a coach who, who came highly recommended. Um, you know, lots of people messaging me asking me to record an episode with Graham. Uh, so I finally got round to, to setting something up and really looking forward to, to sharing that conversation with you guys. Uh, before we get into the, the interview, here's a quick line from our sponsors, Streamlined. Become a qualified swimming teacher with Streamlined in as little as six days. Learn at your own pace and be guided by our expert tutors. You can do your training face-to-face, online in real time, or a combination of the two. Assessment can be in your club using videos or attending one of our assessment venues. We offer tailored, high-quality support. Quote the poolside pass for an extra 10% discount. Okay, so I think it's about time I introduce Graham. Graham Antwistle, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, good. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, pleasure having you. Um, why don't we just start by by getting just a quick background of you know how you got involved with swimming uh, and and your you know just background in the sport, I guess. Uh, I'll try to make that short. Um, <laughs> I started like I started swimming when I was three and swam for progressed through a learned swim scheme to Stockton Aquatics, um, which was a program set up by a man called Dave Banks that I think my parents were pretty um, keen on because they could see success in that program from the likes of Stuart Wilmot and Samantha Purvis, who, who, who used to be Olympians there. So there was, there was always that kind of um, level of swimming within, within Stockton, which is mad really for such a small area. Um, yeah, so when I got into, I, I never really made it as a swimmer. I was like, I swam at the national championships and relays and stuff, but never as an individual. Um, and then when I was about 14, 15, I started helping out on poolside and I quite enjoyed it, if I'm honest. I was just helping out with the youngsters and um, eventually it, it took over, the coaching took over the swimming. So what happened was, it was like one of those scenarios where you st- I started to do a bit more and each bit that I did, I was still paying for my full fees to train, but barely training. So that they got to a point where they were like, look, if you do, if you coach five sessions, you can pretty much swim for free because we'll like pay you in sessions, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then it just all fizzled out. So I was pretty much volunteering, coaching for free and then not training at all. But while I was at college, um, but the scheme, the Stockton Aquatics folded at that point, and uh, there was really nothing. The, the pool was cl- closing, and the, there was two clubs, Stockton Aquatics and Stockton Amateurs, a train at that pool. And really, there was a bit of a push to set up this program called the Borough of Stockton Swim Scheme, which the, it was pulling everything together, but there wasn't a pool. They were going to knock the pool down and rebuild it in a few years. So we, we set that up at a local school pool with kind of a few remaining swimmers that were left. The better ones had all switched clubs and gone to local clubs like Middlesbrough and further afield at Newcastle. And then there was a part-time head coach and myself who kind of set that up and got it running. But very quickly, he was juggling two jobs and he, he found out he, he couldn't do that. And it, it basically, he walked out one night after a discussion with the committee and, and it fell into my hands that they wanted me to take it on at 18 years old, the head coach of a club, which was a bit bizarre, really. But um, I was dropped in the deep end. I didn't know anything. I, I just really had taught swimming, not really coached it to any level. Um, so it all started from there, really. Obviously, it, I had 10 years at the Borough Stockton. And um, within that time, I basically started with a group of swimmers who were eight, nine-year-old, took them on a journey, stayed with them for the whole journey and built underneath. Obviously, I had, I surrounded myself with some pretty amazing people who um, were great teachers of swimming and great people to have on board. I had a good committee behind me and like people who helped me on poolside, Denise Pimlock and Phil Taylor, who, who, Look, those those names might not mean anything to the majority of people listening to this, but for me, they're the people who shaped the swimmers who were coming up underneath the ones I had. Um, 
so there was a continual development of the swimmers. Long story short, but I took those nine-year-olds on that whole journey, like people like Gemma Law and Jess Dickens, and took them to the Olympic Games and world medals and European juniors and stuff. And by the end of the 10th year, we were, um, I think we came eighth at the National Youth Championships, the club as a whole, which was, I think we had 15 swimmers competing, which was, like I say, for, for such a small, small club. So, um, yeah, I put quite, quite impressive. I suppose. Um, I was, I was also supported by like quite a lot of mentors. Obviously throughout that period, I had people like Fred Kirby who worked in the Northeast as a, I worked in the whole of the North for British swimming as a coach development officer, really, and a mentor. So he, he worked quite closely with me. I think it helped that, he lived in Middlesbrough, which is five minutes down the road, so I've probably seen him more than others. Um, so I was heavily supported. He put he pushed me into doing things like the British Women uh, World Class Star programs, and he 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 basically told me I had to go and ask. I think it was Gary Hollywood at the time if I could be a part of it. So he he never he never opened those doors, but he told me who like. He had the connections and told me who I needed to go and speak with if I wanted to yeah. further myself, which was pretty cool. And then um, I think it was 2004 in the Olympic trials, Jess Dickens, who she, she ended up, uh, her, I think her best achievement was a world bronze short course medalist in 2008. And she won the World University Games in the turn of flying. Um, now, <laughs> she she basically competed in the Olympic trials final. I think she was 13. Oh, wow. I think she came wow. about sixth in the turn of fly and she went 216. So from that moment, really, the coming back from the Olympics after that uh, in 2004 from, from Athens and, and the group of coaches that went there, I think Bill Sweetenham was looking to bring some new blood in as well and some new coaches and, and upskill some coaches. So I got selected for the smart track program with a group of young female, I think there was 12, 13 swimmers involved in that. And so then Bill Sweetenham took me under his wing for that period. And I was invited to do things like the UK sport elite coach program, where actually that at the time meant I was uh, employed by British women and but I remained at Stockton. It was it was part of it was part of the deal with the program that you had to be employed by the governing body who nominated you. So I was very fortunate to be able to remain at Stockton. But I'd I'd kind of persuaded Bill that I had some good kids who could go on to to go to the Olympic Games in Beijing. So like obviously Gemma Lowe was successful in that. Jess Jess Dickens actually got the time to go to the Olympic Games as well, but was pipped into third by Ellen Gandhi. Oh, right. So that was it. That's a different story in itself, having two swimmers qualified, but one come back and hadn't. And then yeah. walk, walking back down the pool side at the same time, uh, one qualifying and one hadn't in the same race, but she'd actually got the time. Um, and then, and then, obviously, I, I got up the opportunity to, to coach at the Olympic Games in 2008. And... I was, we'd been told in the February that, look, you can't continue to work at Stockton and we're setting up the ITCs at that time, um, which were I think, Stockport, Bath, Loughborough, Swansea and Stirling. And yeah. um, at, that, at that point, they wouldn't tell me where I could go because I was always going to be the assistant at one of those programmes. Yeah. Hadn't got the head coaches in place. So... Right through the Olympic Games, I still didn't know where I was going to start working in October. Um, and then at the Olympics, obviously, I had I had quite a, a good time there. Gemma came, she, she got some good results, you know, and made a couple of finals and a relay and individually. And uh, but David McNulty was one of the coaches on the team, and he he obviously coached Ryan Jackson to a bronze medal. And it was literally all decided at the Olympic Games behind the scenes that we would be starting in Bath two months later um, on the 1st of October. 
uh, yeah, and, and obviously myself and David have, have known each other for a lot of years. We were good friends. Um, so we kind of, we were speaking about it through the Olympics and saying, wouldn't it be great if, and, and that's what the outcome was. We st both started from scratch in Bath with, with no, yeah, no, there wasn't a program. Though there was a program there, but it um, gone through some upheaval. And um, we, we started with no swimmers. So we moved to Bath in 2008 in October and, and, and started a program from scratch. Obviously, Mark Skimmon was there with the university program. So it wasn't that there wasn't a program there. There was. Yeah. Um, but obviously, the deal had been done with the university that they'd been uh, awarded an ITC. And we took it from scratch. I think we started with two swimmers, which were Matt Clear and Darren Mew. And to be honest, there was two coaches and two swimmers. <laughs> first six to nine months. And um, I spent the majority of time ordering like equipment and we didn't even have a desk to work at or an office or anything so we had to we had to create our own space and where we were going to work and the starting blocks needed renewing the scoreboard needed renewing like the lane ropes needed re and there was this budget to be able to do that so i spent the first six months creating the environment i would say and and david done most of the coaching <laughs> which was a bit weird um yeah but yeah so so then i was there for eight years till 2016 and um yeah we we obviously oh, it's a, everything happened really quick i feel in right. that in that point in time you're obviously in an environment that's there to create success and the demands yeah. are different and and but you're starting from scratch so yeah, we had to almost prove ourselves again and generate these these athletes we, we were fortunate enough that some obviously being a british swimming center good athletes want to come yeah but we still have to create the environment obviously um there was five itcs at the time as well so there's lots of choice and it wasn't an obvious choice because it's quite yeah. an expensive place to live and the grades to get into the center like you have to be a three-year star student so it was a bit slow, but then we got um, Jessica Dickens came back, uh, Chris Walker Heaven from the there was an offshore center at that point in time, TSS, yeah. um, where that was closing down. So some of the athletes came back, and I think Chris Walker Heaven decided to come and train with us at that point. I think that was early two thousand and nine. So he was one of the one of the first ones. Um, and then really, I think there was a few of his friends. It just took a while to, to build up. I think, uh, obviously, Michael Jameson joined us in 2010. He'd come from Fred Venu in Paris. Um, and he'd just come off the back of the Commonwealth Games where he won a silver medal. Yeah. Um, actually, that I think he achieved that with us, but he hadn't been with us that long because it was in Delhi and it was quite late. Yeah. Um, so then he, he obviously went on to do well in, in London and achieve the silver medal. And I suppose from there, it really just kicked on because once you've, once you deliver that level of success, people want to be a part of your program and people yeah. start to see what we were building. And, and you know, like David McNulty's character that like he's, he's, he's got an amazing character. Everybody sees it and it's a fun place to be and it's high energy. So, yeah. so yeah, like that's right up to 2016. We obviously did, we had the success with Jazz Collin and Chris and uh, Andrew Willett, Andrew Willis. Everyone knows that part of the story, I suppose. Yeah. And um, yeah, and 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 from that in 2017, I started. I started at. Swim Wales, and I've been the head coach there now for, for four years. It's the fourth year now. Obviously, this last year <laughs> manic, but it yeah, has been yeah. has been four years. So I know that, like, listen, I felt like I was talking a long time there, but I've missed loads out as well of the story. But well, hopefully, in the next, you know, 
period of time when we're chatting here, we can like, dip into those those bits that, that perhaps perhaps you missed out. Let's go right back to the to the very start when you said you was kind of swimming and coaching, helping out at the same time. What you know, how, how different are you now as as a coach to, to you were back then? Because I know certainly from, from my experience, you know, I was doing a bit of swimming and doing a bit of coaching at the same time. And I was like now reflecting back on it. I feel very much like the coach I was then was just almost a copy of how I was being coached by someone that was coaching me. So it's the same style, a lot of the same ideas. Whereas now looking back on it, you know, I've had had chance to kind of explore and, and find my own methods and find my own kind of comfortable way of doing things um, where I can be a little bit more kind of authentic as a coach, I guess, rather than just trying to copy what someone else is doing. What were your experiences at, at, at that time? suppose um when i first started i was i was teaching and i think that's a good way to start because you're working with real youngsters and it's just about fun and body position and flotation and and real key technical elements and you don't really need any influences for that you just enjoy yourself and Mm. you kind of uh i was coaching like i'm talking six and seven year olds how to swim and it's just teaching, but I actually think that there's a huge link between teaching and coaching. And I'd like to think that that's the bit that I've brought to my coaching is my technical ability from having taught people to swim, but then bringing elite swimmers back to fundamentals, such as body position and your mobility and ability to perform the technique in the first place. So looking at the individual, Obviously, like young kids have got the ability to, like I always say, my little girl can do the splits. And if she does the splits every day of her life, she'll always be able to do the splits. But as you know, you get older, you stop doing these things and you lose the functionality to be able to do it. Yeah. Now, so I always think that the young kids are really quick learners. And I look at their body positions and think what what they're able to do. So obviously, as the swim progresses, they have different uh, traits. It might be that they've got tight thoracic or, yeah, like they've got different elements to them that move differently. You learn to move in your own way. So you have to learn to then adapt the style or be able to work with the physio and work with the um, strength conditioning coach to help them achieve things and put them back into a position that you want them to be able to. Yeah. So, like when I, I when I was coached, don't get me wrong, it was back in the day when the coach wrote the set on a on a board, like it was a chalkboard, and it used to scroll round. You could like pull it down and it would flip over on the other side. Yeah. So the coach could write the set from the warm-up to the main set to the swim down. And you would just like sometimes he wouldn't even tell you what it was, he'd just scroll the board round. You'd have a look, read it, and crack on with the next bit. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't get any coaching, but it wasn't what I would class as now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose at that point, that's where I wanted to put a lot more technical input and I wanted a lot more communication with my athletes. Yeah. Like throughout the session and continuously and learn how to communicate them whilst they were swimming. Mm-hmm. So even if, even if you're not stood at the end of the pool talking to them, you're walking up and down the pool side, still offering them technical improvement. Yeah, absolutely. Just by catching your eye and maybe giving them a signal or that you want a greater distance per stroke or you want their rate to be higher or you want their elbow to be higher or whatever those things are. I think that's that was the way I, I wanted to coach right from the start. So I know, I know you alluded, alluded to it earlier on. Who would you say then were like, some of the people that had like the biggest influences on you as a coach in terms of like how you managed to to find your philosophy essentially who who were the kind of people yeah, so that when, influenced you? I suppose just the just the people around me like um like I said Phil Taylor he he was a policeman at the time he was a parent of a swimmer but he would come on poolside and because he wanted to learn as well, even though he was older, like I've always had 
people who wanted to like just discuss swimming with me and I suppose we all went hand in hand and moved forwards together but that creates challenge and opportunity yeah like yeah. people are just when you have and like I say I've, um had people like Fred Kirby who would come and visit the program and um offer his thoughts and sometimes that can be brutal because maybe he sees something that he didn't like and but I think I think in like us coaches from the northeast we're not afraid to just tell each other how it is like and what we see because I don't think we take it offensively we just think right let's all right they say it in a say it in a nice enough way that you can kind of take it on the chin but at the same time you have to create change so I was always trying to create change for the next time Fred would come and visit me yeah um, and observe that obviously at the time as well I was I was going through my uh coaching courses and everything else so I was mixing with quite a lot of different coaches on on all the, like whether that be a club coaches course or you or your full coaches course um and then the the group of coaches in the northeast at that point in time you've got people like Ian Oliver you've got people like Les Green at Middlesbrough um you've got David McNulty you've got Kev Renshaw um there was such such a depth of knowledge yeah. that so you only have to go to the Northumberland and Durham Championships and like I was surrounded by people who were renowned in Britain as being some of the best coaches. Yeah. So the opportunity to ask them if you could visit their program or just observe their swimmers and talk to them and watch how they spoke to their swimmers. I think it was yeah, you had so many opportunities. You still have to take them and seek them out. Yeah. And actually be aware that they're there. But, yeah, the, the opportunities were there at the time. I'd say, but, all, like, all yeah. of those people probably influenced. So, so moving forward then, obviously you were, you were head coach at um, the, the Borough of Stockton Swim Scheme. And then, obviously, following on from, from your success there, you moved, moved to the ITC. And like you said, you perhaps sort of the first while there you probably weren't doing loads and loads of coaching because you only had a, a few athletes in in in, in the, the center what was your experience like moving from a head coach role where perhaps you were coaching every day you were kind of doing everything to then moving into a, a different environment where perhaps different things are expected of you at first obviously i was used to coaching age to youth swimming so obviously i had a 400 medley based program I had swimmers who were successful in like the tuna fly endurance events. And then I turn up at Bath and the two athletes who come into the centre are exactly the same age as me, who I've known for years and watched them swim at the highest level, Matt Clay and Darren Mew. And then they're both sprinters and senior athletes who are, who are at, the, at the kind of like twilight years of their career I think I better think that's the best way to describe it so that's at like 28 and 29 years old you know yeah. yeah and I mean you have the great thing about them two is they taught us as much as what we were trying to get them to do you know yeah. we were trying to pull them one way and they were pulling those back the other and I think it was more of a relationship it wasn't was it certainly wasn't us it was just us offering them our thoughts on what maybe their weaknesses were and how we could move them on and them telling us, well, these are my strengths. This is what made me good. So let's not pull it too far, but let's try and add the other bits that you like. So putting the pieces of the jigsaw together, I suppose, to find out a little yeah. bit more. Obviously, David is the head coach. He'd had a lot more experience. So even though he'd coached Joanne Jackson to the phone of freestyle, Metal, he, he still had that extra t 10 years of experience of working. He'd been in Loughborough for um, the build-up to the Olympic Games, working in the National Centre. And he he jokes because he learned a lot from Ross Davenport and the like and Mel Marshall and in the fact that he didn't really do recovery. Like, <laughs> he, he treat aerobic training as recovery because when you're coaching age to youth swimmers, they don't necessarily need... A, they're yeah. not doing that high intensity where the next morning they need recovery. 
So he was saying to the lads, look, I just go 50 to 60 below. We'll do four to five K. And they're like, David, I can't move. Like, <laughs> I need to do, I need to do three K of just skills and drills and then get out. And he's like, what? <laughs> so he he always jokes that he learned so much and he had a he had a steep learning curve in that six months period. So yeah. Obviously then British Women at the point in time had uh Dennis Persley come in as the head coach and he then brought in people like Johnny Skinner as a consultant and Johnny was a, sp- a sprinter himself yeah and and he brought so much knowledge to our program that we we then played with it and tweaked what we were doing and learned from other people so you've got so many people who contribute to you to your program along the way you just have to then take all the best bits. Like when I was at um, Stockton, like Tim Kerrison used to drive. I don't know whether you know Tim Kerrison. He's now... Um, is it, uh, is it Team Sky or Team Ineos? Yeah, before? it's now Ineos now. Yeah, so he was the physiologist for British Women. So he he taught me a lot about lactate production, uh, speed and lactate production and lactate tolerance and that kind of high-end philosophy yeah. of, of training. So... I did have that background and then teeing that up with Johnny Skinner's speed work and things. Um, you just formulate your own plan and see how that works for you when the coaches that you're coaching at that point, uh, the swimmers that you're coaching at that point in time. Because obviously at Bath, we had, in the end, we had people from Chris Walker Hebben and that who, who did the 50 to Jazz Carlin, who was doing the eight and everything in between. So we almost ran three programs within one squad, mm-hmm. but made it work for everybody. And I think that's where, like, I, I always say, if as a coach, try not to be everything yourself, but try, like, me and David, I think, complemented each other. Yeah. So we played different roles. Obviously, he was the head coach, and I wasn't there to step on his toes, like I was there to offer my skill set and he let me run with that and fair play. It wasn't, it was, it's not, there was no egos involved. I think yeah. we both knew what our skill sets were and just tried to like, I'd like to think the technical side of things was, was more, was more my thing doing some key focus analysis work and with the athletes and the video analysis and, and obviously like David's David with it, with his energy and his character and obviously um yeah like what uh, i think everyone know what david offers you know so (laughs) so i suppose when you look when you look at that and you look over like the the whole of your career so far what would you say were kind of some real key moments that that shaped you were there any kind of key experiences where you look back on now and think well I'm a different coach because of because of that experience. Um, I think I was always seeking different experiences. Like I think as a coach, you've got to try to continually develop. Yeah. I always had in mind what I wanted to achieve. Um, and I wanted to get to the position that I'm in now, like as and I wanted to um I wanted to be able to become like an, a national coach in a in a in a in a role where I share a lot of the experience that I've had yeah. throughout. That probably came a bit earlier than what I thought it would. Like I, I'd hoped to have remained on pull side a little bit longer. Um, and but what I did do was take every opportunity that come my way, and I suppose all of like whether that's seeking the opportunity to be on the world-class start program in the first place. Like that's a big step because if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been on anyone's radar at all. Like I I always thought, right, I'll keep my head down, do a good job. The results will speak for themselves and you'll get recognized for the results. And I think, I, I think I did that along my career and I kind of did get recognition, but it was people like um, Fred who would say, put yourself out there, go and speak to him. And like, 
tell them who you are, tell them what you're doing. And like Gary, Gary Hollywood, he'll, he'll put you on the world-class star program. So that was the first step on the ladder. Then obviously like, um, yeah, the, just the Bill Sweetenham nominating you for the UK Sport Elite Coach Program. That was in 2006. And then you're mixing with other elite coaches who are coaching Olympic medal, like Dan, Danny Kerry, the uh, British hockey coach who coached the women's team with the Olympic gold medal in 2012. Like you're surrounding, and Tony Minicello, who coached Jess Ennis at the time. Yeah. Like you yeah. were surrounding yourself with people who, are winners and who, who, who are desperately trying everything that they can and make their athletes the best that they can be. Yeah. I suppose like um, I probably relied a little bit too much on those people recognizing what I was doing well to then push me to go and do something. Yeah. I maybe, I maybe wasn't the one who was seeking it in the first place. I was probably a bit comfortable and they were making me feel uncomfortable, which that's what that's what pushed me on, if I'm honest. Yeah. People are challenging me to feel uncomfortable. Whereas I know some people that would be have that go-getter attitude. Um, but fortunately, I think those people have seen something in me and then pushed me. But I think to be honest, like even a day coming on this, I said, Yeah, I was pretty nervous because I, I like talking, don't get us wrong. And I like it feels like I'm just talking to you yeah. and that's all right. I know that you're going to put it out there for an audience, but um, I'm not a self promoter. Like if somebody wants to come and chat with us and, and have a conversation, I love to have the conversation. Like yeah. I'm passionate about swimming and I, I love the conversation, but I don't think I'm the person who puts myself out there. And actually sometimes like um, some of the comments have been actually I don't look the most approachable sometimes. I'm quite <laughs> serious. So I, I guess people then don't take that initiative to come and talk with us. But when they do, I'd like to think that I'll just offer whatever I can. I'm not saying I've got all the answers, but I've got experience that I can share, yeah. you know? So, yeah, the opportunities that are along the way, I think I think it's it's people who've created me. It's It's and offered me those opportunities and then you need to like um i, I always try to say to people get get annoy yourself right yeah. like um just to demonstrate your skill sets but then you need these other people to to get you to find skill sets that you didn't have mm-hmm. yeah i think so like Obviously, the three roles that I've that I've been in now is the head coach of a well, head coach of a club, then working in a high performance center, and now as a national coach, that all require different skill sets. And I was I was the assistant at Bath as well, so that's a different role. Like as, from being the head coach and being the the one who's fronting it, to then understanding how to be an assistant. <laughs> When you've had ten years of finding your own way and then going to a different yeah. environment, and you have to you have to work with like a lot of other people, but that's where credit to David. He he like we were good friends as well at the time, and he allowed me. He knew who I was and what I was about, and let me take on the bits that I was responsible for. And then in this role again, um, I think one of the reasons that like I always say about self-promotion and I actually I actually like to one of the one of the reasons I like this role is because a lot of it's coach development and I like to develop or like to think at encourage and develop and empower everybody around me so that it's actually them that I'm trying to promote yeah not not really myself um and I think I think uh that's helped me even when I was back at the club and trying to get like, I had, I remember having a five lane, 25 meter pool. That's what we had. That's what we had at Thornaby. But I had eight coaches on poolside, like in a five lane pool and people wanted to be part of it. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what I'd like to think. I, I encourage that uh, team approach and that we all have a part of play and, 
that people enjoy coming on poolside and learning themselves and kind of like get get a bit of a kick from doing it themselves, you know. You say, you mentioned there like you very, like you're very passionate about swimming and you really enjoy having conversations with people about coaching and about swimming. For me, you know, some of the, the, the biggest things for me in terms of where I've learned the most is maybe when you're, when you're at a meet somewhere um, and you go for a, for a drink after the meet and I pub with like a few coaches. For me, they're, they're the, the, the best conversations because it's, everyone's just so kind of relaxed and the meet's over and just having a, having a chat about coaching. So for me, that was kind of what spurred me on to kind of set up the podcast, to have more of those discussions and try and share them as, as, as much yeah. as possible. Um, so I, I certainly agree. That was, that was definitely the case when I worked in the Northeast. Like <laughs> when I was in a club environment and like, yeah, we used to enjoy a good night out when we were at competitions and getting to know everybody. And like, that's how I met people like David and Kevin and, and the like, you know, and when, but then when we were in Bath, you didn't want to put yourself in, in that uh, environment where you were necessarily socializing because you, what's the word I'm looking for? You wanted to retain a professionalism and you yeah. wanted to be like almost like not caught off guard. And then you also wanted to be able to turn up the next morning fresh to be able to deliver because actually you're dealing with people who the swim the next day could be the end of their career. Yeah. Or an Olympic qualifying meet that, or a meet that's going to give them funding for the next year or so don't get me wrong, me, me and David would go out for a meal and we'd, we'd, we'd do that together and with our team. And I think that's where we probably became a little bit less approachable in that, in that respect. Um, and, and just a bit more, like when we were there, we were there to do a job and it was serious because people's, because the risks were yeah. so much greater, I suppose. Yeah. So you, you say now, obviously, most of your job is around kind of coach development and, and you, you enjoy that a lot. Um, do, you, do you think now that perhaps, I think there's been a lot of energy spent, especially when I've been, been growing up and coaching on um, perhaps more of the, the soft skills of coaching, so the more kind of communication, um, the relationship management, all that kind of stuff. Do you think perhaps prior to that, there was a lot of, technical delivery on kind of how to set up a training program and then we flipped it the other way and now it's now there's perhaps not so much of that and more of more of the kind of soft yeah, I, I remember when like when I first was doing British women conferences and things like that when uh, maybe 2002 I remember going to one in Nottingham and I left and I think it was like people like there was Bob Trefine, there was Mikey Perebrin, there was Tim Kerris, all these sports scientists who spoke at us talking about mitochondria and all these different things. And I left that and I said to Kev, look, Kev Renshaw, I said, oh, mate, if you have to know all that, I'm not sure I can coach <laughs> at that level. I said, like, I don't, it, that, I said that was way above my head, you know. But then... Like now, I still I still couldn't sit here and have a like I could have a conversation about it, but I would put it into coaching terms and yeah. the way that it would practically apply to swimmers and how you can write a session to make that work. Um, but it's still not my strength, but I've still got a lot to offer from my experience of coaching distance to sprint to middle distance and stuff in in, in those areas. Uh, and the practicalities of how to make it work, you know. Um, and then, obviously, um, my, my, my philosophy has always been technical. But, like, I, as an example, if, if I've got a person in front of me, a swimmer in front of me, yeah, it's about making that person the best swimmer and person that they can be. So I'm not one for, like, massively looking into what the world record is at any moment in time. I like to know how it swam technically so that I can 
set measures and goals, but actually who would, who did that world record and what the world record is doesn't necessarily matter because it's about the person in front of me. You can't influence other people. You can only influence what you have in front of you. So it was still quite rounded, you know, with the OADF philosophy of person, athlete, performer, because um, you can't just technically coach someone and physiologically coach someone there's there's a whole load of other stuff that yeah. they turn up to the pool that you have to be able to deal with to get the best out of that person but i would say that um to raise awareness in those areas like coaching's a whole lot different now i couldn't coach how i coached at stockton now i don't believe right i couldn't go back into club coaching and do what i did then now yeah i think um like how much of that is is because coaching changed and how much of that is because the people the, the people have changed that you, you would be coaching yeah a bit, of, a bit of both you know like i've matured so i'm not as like um i wouldn't get as stressed if like uh like some of my coaches used to say uh, some of my swimmers used to say like after a few weeks, if I was tired or whatever, I was working 16 hour days at that point. I was doing uh, coaching on a morning, coaching school swimming nine or three, doing public lessons four or five. And then some nights running a club from five till 9 p.m. Yeah. Like four weeks had gone past. And until it got to the school term, towards the end of that, I was exhausted. And I had, like, I would be unshaven and have a beard on that. <laughs> the swimmers would say to me, Oh, he's got his beard on. Like, just, He's having a go at us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't say it was anger, but if they didn't do anything, if they, if there's a group that weren't doing stuff right, I would like sometimes shove all their mesh bags into the pool. <laughs> so that, because rather than stop, if I want to stop everybody, rather than like one person touching the wall and saying, can you stop everybody? I'd be like, I'd shove all the mesh bags in so that everyone had to stop. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And then I'd be like, right, we're starting again. It's not good enough. And I, I just think that um, the way that I would have dealt with stuff then was just a bit immature because I didn't have the maturity to be able to um, express how I wanted things to be. I, like, yeah. I'm so much more calmer now. People might disagree, but <laughs> I, I, I think there's other ways now. I know I've got such a wider skill set. I know how I would treat each individual a whole lot better. Yeah. Cool. And I'd, probably, I'd have probably found out so much more about the athlete before they even got in the water to find out whether they were ready to do what Yeah. I wanted them to achieve that session. Yeah. I guess then cracking on with a set and everyone, yeah, just rocking up and getting stuck in and just expecting them to be able to perform whenever I asked them to. Yeah. I guess like science has moved on as well so like now as coaches because science has moved on we're also much more aware of you know all the other factors that go into to making a performance as well so you know we have to take that into account when, when we deliver our coaching right yeah it, well it has but also um a lot like what we spoke about before where you might get your education in the bar rather than reading from the book like very fortunately we had the opportunity to speak to all those people because they were all still around and coaching. There's very few of those scientists who wrote the books and applied their philosophies actually applying them anymore. Yeah. So you, you've, you very rarely even have the opportunity to get them to speak on like podcasts or because a lot of them are much more senior now. Yeah. I'm not saying there isn't new science coming through with new new thoughts and opinions, but especially down that physiology route, I think that's an area where, uh, yeah, like there were some real experts and some of that uh, is still very applicable and that people moved away from that actually needs revisiting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure, you know, as, as the years go on, maybe in, in, in 10 years' time, you know, there'll be maybe the, the cycle will, will go around again and there will be once again people who have, you know, written new science, applying that science in around the arena. Perhaps now we're just in that kind of in-between space, I guess, right? We're, we're waiting. Yeah, for I think 
I think to be honest, a lot when when I talk about science, like I said, I, I kind of specifically talked about physiology there, but there's been so much about the implementation of strength and conditioning and how that can contribute to it. Whereas previously that wasn't seen to be, it was frowned upon if you if yeah. you re- really were going in the gym and stuff. Obviously people have got their own philosophies. I know, I know Stephen Tigg with Duncan Scott, he, he's, yeah, he's got to make him strong, but he, he, he's got, um, he, he always uses an analogy of a Formula One car. And why would you want to add weight to a Formula One car? But you can still make someone strong without adding weight, you see? Yeah. So there's so much advanced knowledge in, in those areas now and, and physio and mobility and nutrition and supplements. And if, I think it went all down that route, whereas actually I think it's some of the physiological stuff still applies, whereas some of the other stuff can be the add-on when you, when you get to a senior and yeah. youth, when you're transitioning from from youth to senior. And I think that's one thing that's been done really well and you can see the results have come from that over the last two Olympic cycles. Yeah. Well, really from 2008, that was the start of it. Previous to that, Britain barely ever won a medal, you know? And we've won more medals at the last three Olympics than what we probably did in 40 years before that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think um, what you mentioned there about having that kind of the add-on stuff for the supplements, all that kind of stuff that adds on afterwards is, is, is so important. Um, and sometimes with those kind of those youth athletes, sometimes you've got to like, you've got to bring them back down a, a little bit and say, well, there's no point doing all that extra stuff. If you're not yeah. doing, doing some of the, the basics, right. So sometimes it's about kind of getting, getting that balance right. Right. Yeah, you don't, just don't throw the kitchen sink at the kids too young, you know. I, I often see, like, um, coaches getting all the bungee cords out and obviously, like, entertaining with them. And it's good if you keep it to a certain skill set, but if you're sticking hand paddles and all these things on with the cords and giving them stuff that they would probably do more when they're older to, do, to, to develop strength specific for sprint, like, all of that stuff... There's nowhere to go. Mm. Like, there's always got to be the next step, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I always, like, I, I always say to some of the coaches who promote long course training, I, I, don't get me wrong, the has, like, it's great to have the facilities that we have now for long course training. But your 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds don't need it, really, you know? Because some of them have got the privilege of training in a world-class environment and a beautiful facility that actually they're very lucky to have that from such a young age. And actually when you get to a certain age, the, the um, ability to move into a center light path, it's, an, it's another stimulation. It's like, right, I've got this now to offer to my program. Yeah. Yeah. So just as we kind of uh, summarize and finish up, we always ask, Kind of our, our guests for kind of their, their top three tips uh, tips for something. And I think you know following the discussions we, we've had today, I think it would be you know only right that we ask you for your kind of top three tips to, to ensure lifelong learning as a, as a coach. Yeah, so like for for one, I would say coaching can be quite isolating if you if you just stick to your own little environment. So I think it's important to get a network of people around you and for you to put yourself out there so that you've got a communication tool as yeah. well um, for your own sanity as well. Cause <laughs> it's, a, it's not an easy, easy role. I think that um, you've got to have continual development and seek mentors. So always try to, even if it's a more informal mentor, try to have somebody who I always say, keep yourself ahead of your athletes. Yeah. So, at that point in time, like I needed to know what was next for those kids because I was bringing them through and I was hand in hand with them. I wasn't one step in front of them. So the opportunity that Fred Kirby and Bill Sweetnam and those guys was exposure to different environments. And then I would then start to go and visit other environments to, to learn what's next, you know, yeah. what's, what's next. So that continual development, just like seek it. And then I would say the thing that I didn't do well, I would 
I would contradict that nowadays, especially with maybe some of the opportunities of social media and like you're doing with your podcasts and stuff. I wouldn't say self-promotion, but you are putting yourself out there as someone who wants to learn, has something to offer. Yeah. And is striving to be the best that you can be. And I think that's critical now. And I think that's maybe something that like I didn't do. And like I said, I was nervous about coming on today because I, I didn't want to come on and, and talk about myself. Yeah. I'm still con- like, even when I listen to it back, I'll be like, Oh no, I've talked way too much. About <laughs> so, but I would say that actually put yourself out there to do that a little bit because there's too much. Um, I always think perception versus reality. If you don't put yourself out there, people will perceive you in a certain way anyway. Yeah. You might as well be creating that reality and letting people know who you are and what you're about rather than perceive who you are and what you're about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Graham, thank you very much for your time. Um, you know, I've certainly just been an absolute sponge in today's conversation and, and absorbed so much of, of, what, of what you had to say. So thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm sure the, the listeners uh, w- will enjoy this episode as well. It's certainly been um, requested uh, many times. So I'm very happy to have finally been able to, to, to get this one off the ground. No, thanks for the, thanks for the invitation and making me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say also thank you to the listeners uh, for, for tuning in. I hope you, hope you enjoyed the episode and, and learned as much as I did. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to point you towards our social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Poolside Pass. And of course, our website, www.thepoolsidepass.com. Until next time, take care.